0: I invite you now to take a Bible and to open it to Ephesians chapter 1. Again, if you're a visitor with us this Sunday as a church family, for this year we've been going through each book of the New Testament looking at how it begins and how it finishes. And so we'll be in Ephesians 1 today and then Ephesians 6 next week. Uh, And then for our retreat at Beulah Beach, we'll be in the book of Philippians. And so we'll look at the the beginning of Philippians in Acts chapter 16 uh, on the Saturday morning class and then in the Saturday evening message will be uh, the first part of the letter of Philippians and then Sunday morning will be Philippians chapter four. So we'll actually in the retreat keep going uh, in this series. Uh, And for the entirety of that one, both the adults and the kids will be working through uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians. But here we are for now uh, in Ephesians. So this is Ephesians chapter one. If you're using one of the Bibles provided for you there in the pew, this is page 917. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father, Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory? For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And that'll conclude our reading for this morning. Uh, Hopefully, even if you've never read Ephesians uh, 1 before, you could pick up just tonally on how positive it is that Paul is talking about a a lot of really good things and good things that bring him great joy. Uh, We can't pick up on it in reading it in translation, but actually verses 3 through 14 are in the original this sort of run-on sentence uh, that grammatically violates a ton of rules, but therefore grammatically gives this indication of somebody who just has a lot of good things that he is excited to say that it keeps on going as he shares about the many blessings that we have in Christ. This chapter is almost a good contrast to how he began Galatians. So when he began Galatians, he was able to refer to all of us living in this present evil age. And we said in Galatians, Paul wasn't criticizing something specific in Galatia there wasn't a news headline that made him say oh my goodness this is messed up this is evil no that was a way in which he could describe the reality that we all live in here it's almost the opposite now where Paul is so optimistic about so many good things that are going on again we might make a mistake and say I bet Ephesus is like the best place to live that if if you read this letter and, and you read it in comparison with the other letters of the New Testament, that you might say to yourself, I need to sell my house and move here because this is where all the good stuff is happening. That would be a misreading of it because every good thing that Paul is excited to share has nothing to do with Ephesus. And so it is true for all of the believers who are in Ephesus, but it's also true for all of the believers who are in Galatia living through this present evil age, and it's all true for you and for me in whatever circumstance we are presently living in. He's trying to lift all of us up to a a sort of a different plane where with eyes of faith we could see that whether we're in Ephesus, or here in Akron, whatever our trials or circumstances are, that we would see God and see his beauty and his glory and his authority and say whatever we're going through, there is not a moment where we are not under his watchful eye, where we cannot rest in the promises that he's given us, where we cannot access the riches that he has already granted to us. And that's hard to accept by faith, but it sort of draws upon the way Jesus himself, when he was on this earth and preaching, and there he was in a hillside uh, near the Sea of Galilee, and saying to people who were listening to them, that listen, my my father takes care of all of the birds that you see, and all of the wildlife, the flowers that are blooming. There, There is nothing that you're looking at that doesn't have some mark of my Father on it. And you, you read Jesus' sort of sense of confidence about God's rule and reign that you might think, well, it was everything going great around him? No. <laughs> Uh, Jesus was born into incredibly sad circumstances where his parents had very little rights or freedoms. He was now up very, very far away from Jerusalem with not access to so many things that we ourselves have access to. And yet in spite of limited resources and in spite of limited freedoms, he seemed to be otherwise completely confident that his father ruled the world and so he wasn't in a rush to do anything and he wasn't trying to bully anybody over into accepting something he he manifested this sense of calm in spite of the chaos around him because he really believed that this was his father's world and that whatever he was going to face and walk through and at that point he preached that sermon after he had already been tempted by the devil in the wilderness that it was attractive to people around him to say, how do, you, how do you have this sense of peace, this sense of calm, this sense of confidence that God is in charge when there is so much broken and evil in this present age? And so Paul is picking up on that sort of very same posture of Jesus to remind everybody of who God is and to believe that that makes the difference that your hearts and my heart Needs. And so the first point we, I'd want to highlight from this is just the Father's blessing. Verse three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's the that tonally, like Paul is excited about something and he's saying we bless God who blesses all of us. Uh, hymns that are familiar to me and to many of you, we, we sing, come thou fount, of every blessing and tune my heart to sing thy praise or praise God from whom all blessings flow that the Father has blessed the world that he has made when we read about its creation in Genesis 1 as he created he speaks the goodness over it he says it is good it is good it is good it has his affirmation and approval as he Made it and he is the source and the fount of all blessings. But also for Paul uh, and many of his first hearers, they would think of specifically a father's blessing in a way that also not only reminded them of where things came from, but it also made them think about where things were going. That often a father would extend a blessing when The father knew that he was no longer going to be around, and the blessing was the way in which the inheritance was then decided going forward. And so, in the story of of, uh, Israel now blessing his 12 children and knowing that his time was coming to an end and he was now going to speak a blessing over each of his children, there is not just that sense of where did it all come from, but where is this all headed? Where is it going? And in this same way, Paul acknowledges that God is the one who created us. It's been his plan from before the foundation of the world that we would in the future, (laughs) that everything would work towards the praise of his glorious grace, and that we would be a part of that inheritance going forward. This is the blessing that you and I might not feel like our lives are immediately characterized by right now, but therefore we gather together in worship, we read the sacred words of scripture to be reminded of where we've come from and where we're going. And that when we have that opportunity to to sort of be at the, the banquet feast of scripture and to hear all the different promises, it encourages our hearts. It's like uh, being a, a, at other banquets. We were at uh, a graduation party yesterday, Emma's graduation party. And for my kids, it's usually in those big events where then they they, they kind of know what's coming. And so yesterday was one of those, oh, my goodness, there's Krispy Kreme donuts, and there's cupcakes, and there's chocolate chip cookies, and, and all of a sudden it becomes this, whoa, 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 hold on. No, you just because it is all there. Um, that doesn't mean you can have all of it or if you can it doesn't mean you can have it all at once you have to have something before you have that other thing but it's this abundance it's this feast that's being laid before us that we all do at different points in celebrations and it was actually Jesus himself who described the world in that way imagine a king throwing a banquet and saying anybody who wants to can come well what's that king going to do that king is going to make sure that there is more than enough for everybody who comes. That's his responsibility as the person who's throwing the party to make sure that for everyone who says yes and that they want to come, that they don't run out of food, that they don't run out of drink, that everybody who comes is then served in a way that they take in the joy that the father intends for them to have. So we need to be reminded of that, that we all experience the blessing of our heavenly father over us to not only have brought us to this point, but his promise to take us all the way home, to keep on blessing us, that there's an inheritance that we will have that he promises to give us. And actually, verses 3 through 14 are also a way in which Paul now, writing to this church in Ephesus, that is made up of a mixed up group of people these are now not Jews only but Jews and Gentiles people coming from very different backgrounds and what Paul is doing is saying all of the blessings that in the Old Testament had been promised to Israel the promise of adoption the promise of being chosen the promise of being specially loved though all of those promises apply to all of us that we're all entering into this There's sometimes where we see in the New Testament realities that sort of uh, replace or improve upon things in the old. And Jesus said, you know, you heard that it used to be said this way, and I'm telling you now this way. But when it comes to these blessings, the apostle is saying, all of these good things actually get better and greater. It's not that they go away. It's not that they're taken away. It actually goes from strength to strength. All of these particular promises are now universal. And so we go back and we reread those stories of the Old Testament of God's blessing upon his people and his provision for them in each and every circumstance. And we can read them, whatever our background is and say, those belong to us. (laughs) That blessing extends to us if we come to him by faith. And then he goes on to say that that blessing comes because of the son's redemption Uh, So the Father is the one who blesses all of us, who's created the world and made it in love, and he has sent his Son into this world to redeem us from this present darkness so that we could be back into fellowship with him. And so if you had a highlighter and you were just to highlight how many times in this short chapter it says, in him, in him, in him. Uh, You'd be surprised at how many times that that is Paul's point. We receive all of the father's blessing in relationship and covenant with his son. All of it becomes ours when we become his is the point that he's making. There's a loving relationship that now makes all of that accessible to us. And redemption is a term that they could have used even in their day, not just to describe uh, love in that way, but also just transactions. To redeem something was to buy it back, was to secure it for yourself, and often carried the notion that it was something that had already and originally belonged to you, and now you were getting it back. Uh, so that it, what used to be yours is yours again. And so you're redeeming it. I've told this story before, uh, but it is always one of, uh, for me, the best remembrances of this picture, uh, because we don't have too many scenarios where we're required to purchase something back, but uh, a story of one of my great uncles was told, where he went to the thrift store and found a tie, and he was super excited that he found this really nice tie for maybe a dime, and so was really proud that he uh, had purchased this tie And so he came home and he showed his wife this tie that he bought and she had then informed him that that in fact was his tie that she had taken to the thrift store and gave it to them which he now purchased back. And so he went from now being excited that he had this great deal of buying something for only 10 cents to now being frustrated that he had to buy something that had already belonged to him um, and he had paid for previously. And there's a way in which it, it doesn't make sense. We shouldn't have to buy back things that were once already ours. But if we want them and we want them back, what the son reveals through scripture is that uh, he's willing to pay the price that is required to get us back. So that we would experience all of the blessings which we so often in this day and age do not experience. And so for each and every one of those promises to become true to us, the son was willing to redeem us And to bring us into this relationship. And to bind us to himself so that we could now know this joy. And so it has uh, both a a legal sort of understanding to it and also an emotional uh, and volitional understanding to it. And I found this helpful uh, as a description of how scripture often puts these two ideas together when it comes to covenant. When we talk about a covenant and God's willingness to love us in this way, where he combines law and love, that with his desire for us, he's willing to secure us. Uh, This is a a helpful description. Uh, This is from the book, The Meaning of Marriage by Timothy and Kathy Keller. They say, what then is a covenant? It creates a particular kind of bond that is disappearing in our society. It's a relationship far more intimate and personal than a merely legal business relationship. Yet at the same time, it's far more durable, binding, and unconditional than one based on mere feeling and affection. A covenant relationship is a stunning blend of law and love. As we've seen, modern thought does not usually put duty and passion to be compatible or capable of mutually stimulating interdependence. Someone who says, I love you, but we don't need to be married, is actually saying, I don't love you enough to curtail my freedom for you. The willingness to enter a binding covenant, far from stifling love, is a way of enhancing it, even supercharging it. A wedding promise is proof that your love is actually at a marriage level as well as a radical act of self-giving. When dating or living together, you have to prove your value daily by impressing and enticing. You have to show that the chemistry is there, that the relationship is fun and fulfilling, or it'll be over. And so we're still basically in a consumer relationship, and that means constant promotion and marketing. The legal bond of marriage, however, creates a space of security, where we can open up and reveal our true selves. We can be vulnerable, no longer having to keep up facades. We don't have to keep selling ourselves. We can lay the last layer of our defenses down and be completely naked both physically and in every other way. This blending of law and love fits our deepest instincts. And this is what we long for, which is why Paul then in talking this way about the Savior's love by chapter five, eventually talks about the Savior's willingness to redeem us is also the husband's willingness to marry us. It says all of that is a picture of in love, willing to bind in covenant relationship so that there's a permanence in what he has done for us. So that we can rest in the security of all that we now experience through marriage with the savior who's come for each and every one of us. And then it continues on to say, not only does it describe the son's redemption, but then the spirit's guarantee. So if, we still have, if we're still wondering uh, the intentions here, look at verses 13 and 14. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And so if the son was willing to pay whatever the price was to bind us together with him, now Paul's also saying the spirit is our down payment and our guarantee of the inheritance that every promise yet to be fulfilled will be fulfilled. Everything that we still look at and say, I wish this were different, I wish I were more mature, whatever it is, we have the Holy Spirit with us as the guarantee from our Heavenly Father to bring to completion all that the Son secured for us this is what we believe by faith was true not only for them in Ephesus when the majority of their culture did not reflect obedience and surrender to God when everything they desired to do wasn't necessarily affirmed by their neighbors and encouraged by them and yet all of these things were true and so the same is now true for us for us to enjoy the fullness of the Father's blessing and the security of the Son's redemption and live in the freedom of the guarantee of the Spirit's presence. We might long for things to change around us, but we don't need them to for us to enjoy this by faith. And so this all then eventually leads to the church's calling, which is uh, hinted at a bit here at the end of chapter one, but continues on in chapter two. He says that we, as his children, are his body. It says that God has put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And then he continues down into verse 2. If you jump to verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And this is our calling to ask of God, well, well, what is all of this blessing for? What is all of this goodness that you're giving to us and this guarantee for? And says that we are his workmanship, a, a poem, you could literally translate it, that he's writing so that we could walk in the good works that he's prepared for us so that we can be blessings to other people that we can be the kind of people who don't love people just a little bit and then walk away from them the moment things get rough, but that we show love that's real and true, that we show joy that doesn't come from our surrounding circumstances but comes from our faith in God himself, that we ourselves are not making excuses for our ongoing struggles with sin and temptation but saying, you've given us your spirit. And with that spirit comes power and we can know God more and more and we can have greater victory in our lives over the things that we struggle with. And we can encourage one another in that way. We can hold each other accountable. We can seek uh, even larger reforms not only with us but within our society so that the damage of sin is mitigated and more people have opportunities to experience the Father's blessing of life and freedom, and joy, and peace. This is our calling for all of us. Wherever we might work and play and interact, that as those who have inherited so rich a blessing, that to whom much has been given, much is now required. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the goodness of your word and the promise that it gives us that transcends, uh, the newsreel, uh, the the seasons, whether it's summer or winter, um, or our current challenges that we all have in, in our own ways, things that are unsure in our lives. And we thank you for everything that is changing in this world and for everything that is uncertain in this world, that we can rest in our confidence of who you are. That you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. That just like you created this world in love, you are redeeming this world in love. And you are calling us to to serve this world in love. You know our weak and heavy hearts. You know how often we're tempted to believe more about the lies around us than the truth that you give us. And so we pray that you would just continue to give your spirit um, in greater measure to our hearts, fulfilling the promise that you made, that you will complete the work that you have begun, that we can experience a peace that passes understanding, that You have, in fact, already overcome the world and so that we can trust in you in all of our circumstances. Father, we confess that more often than not our thoughts of you are too small Uh, and so we pray that through this uh, letter you would enlarge in them, Uh, that our hearts would be drawn into greater praise of your great glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We invite you to stand for our last song.